we have African gorillas, we have Indian elephants, we have lions that are that are supposed to be not mountain, but they're African lions. We also have crocodiles and alligators together at the same time. I mean, there, if you want something that's that's biologically wrong, it's in this film. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Happy New Year, and I'll start this new year by talking to three old acquaintances from the online vintage film community who have new projects. Author Frank Thompson on an epic book about Bojest and its many incarnations. Film restorer Eric Grayson on a long unseen part for a soon-to-be legendary star and author Christine Latour on a French studio with troubling connections in World War II. There's nothing troubling about subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks! Back in America Online days, my life changed when I started participating on an old Usenet group, alt.movies.silent, because it was there that I met a whole community of similar vintage film fans, and even some experts, who'd written books and restored films and composed musical accompaniment for them. All kinds of stuff. In time, I launched Nitrateville to give this community a new home online, while in the real world I met many of them in person, real human beings from the internet, at festivals like Cinevent, now the Columbus Moving Picture Show, and Capital Fest. Many episodes here have featured guests who I met these ways, but this episode is all about them. We'll begin with an adventure film I'm pretty sure you've seen. Frank Thompson, El Alamo on Nitrateville, is an author, historian, contributor of commentary tracks to video releases, and speaking of the commentary track, that was the name of a podcast he did in the 2010s, well worth digging into back episodes of. His latest project is a history of the many lives of Bojest, the classic tale of three brothers who disappear into the French Foreign Legion, where they are pitted against a sadistic commander. From the original books to screen, stage, and radio versions. There's a Kickstarter for it going on, and it will soon be available to order on Amazon. 
I spoke with Frank from his home in Asheville, North Carolina. What got you so obsessed with Bojest as opposed to being hot for Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein or something? <laughs> well, I'm hot for that one, too. I think that it has something to do with the struggle to see it. You know, with with girlfriends or with uh, movies, it's the harder you have to work. <laughs> yes. The, the more treasured it is. I saw Bojest on television when I was 12. Only saw the last half of it. As it as it turns out, because I can remember it was they were talking about the mutiny in the barracks. So almost exactly halfway through the film. And it was another decade before I was able to see the entire film. And even then I was living in Boston, found out that it was playing at the Theater 80 St. Mark's in New York City and drove four hours down there, walked in, saw it. Got back in the car, four hours back to Boston. But uh, perfectly that was a, rational behavior, in my yeah. opinion. <laughs> and uh, very soon after that, got my first sixteen millimeter print of it, which made things a lot easier. But um, but that was part of it. And uh, you know, I I think people get the idea that I treasure the film a lot more than I actually do the Wellman film. I like it. I've always liked it. But it's not one of my very favorite films of all time. It just started me on this pathway. All of my interest in film sprang from that moment when I was 12. Because I got the photoplay edition of the book. It was in my school library, which I checked out the next day. It, the last time it had been checked out was 1939. Yeah. But it was the, you know, it was the photoplay edition. So it was the Ronald Coleman version. So that all by itself just made me start reading about silent films. And for no other reason, I wanted to find out, find some more Bojest stills or something. But uh, then from there, you go to Keaton and Chaplin and Harold Lloyd and, and uh, Rudolph Valentino. And it just, you know, I, I call seeing Bojest that day the pebble in the pond. It just right. kept rippling and rippling. Well, and I think it's interesting. I mean, you're also a historian of the Alamo. Yeah. And there's certain resemblances between the Alamo and the siege at Fort Zindernuf, which can't be accidental, I think. <laughs> I, you know, m many people have tried to make that connection, and I guess it's there, but I, they seem to have nothing in common to me except forts. I, I like a good fort. So yeah. what can I say? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you saw the 1939 version. Um, how long before you saw other versions? Well, the the Doug McClure Telly Savalas remake came out right after that. Okay. Like within a less than a year. So that and that's another thing because I couldn't see the rest. I I couldn't see the entire Wellman film for years. Still, the universe kept bombarding me with stuff because within within that same 12-month period, an episode of The Man from UNCLE, The Beaugest Affair, yeah. came on. There was an episode of Gilligan's Island in which they they reference Beaugest and they make dummies to because they think they're <laughs> under siege from these bad guys. When I started working on this book, you know, we did this massive book on Wellman that came out in 
2018 that's as big as a house in itself. Then when COVID lockdown started, I thought I should just go ahead and do a book on all the adaptations of Beaujest because I have so much stuff. And in fact, it took me a full month just to organize all of my <laughs> material. And I thought I was going to, because this was in March, you know, when the lockdown started, I figured I could be done by December. Well, I was done by December, but uh, December 2022. Right. <laughs> there were aspects of this thing that I had no idea about. And I would say primarily among them were the radio adaptations. Yeah. Which I knew of the Orson Welles and the episode of Escape. And I had heard one of the BBC, the 2009 one, um, I'd heard that one. But in Australia... You could blot out the sun with their numbers of <laughs> adaptations. It's just amazing. And nobody, of course, I mean, why would they? Nobody's ever done any research on this stuff. I wrote my first book on, uh, it was called William A. Wellman, and it was published in 1983. I was already, I mean, certainly I was still interested in Beaugest, but but that had led me on to being interested in Wellman and pursuing his career. And luckily, I was able to interview Charlie Barton, who was uh, going back to Abbott and Costello. Right, yeah. He directed that, <laughs> but he's also in Beaugest. And uh, was Wellman's uh, assistant on Wings and many other, the late 20s, early 30s Paramount films. And also Joe Youngerman, who was Wellman's assistant on for his second Paramount contract, which was 38 to 42. And so uh, it was very fortunate that I got to talk to them because they were both there on the set, on the location, and uh, gave me uh, firsthand, often contradictory stories, but <laughs> firsthand stories. And uh, so... There was that, and I really didn't write any more about it for years because I had, this is my 45th book. They've been on lots of different subjects. So I didn't really return to it except now and again, in a, you know, somebody would ask me to write a video article or something for some magazine. And, um, you know, I, I did one for some California magazine on uh, Buttercup Valley, which was the location for the first four Beaugests. So we just, you know, I just kept coming back to it. You know, I introduced it at the, at a screening of the Academy with the Mod Alto Orchestra. This is the 1926 version, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then I introduced it at UCLA and I, you know, just for some reason, people kept uh, inviting me to talk about one or the other of the first two Beaugests. All right. Well, let's, let's go back to PC Ren and, and where this story comes from. Um, it, he was a novelist who'd had some minor success, I guess you'd say, but nothing like Bo Just, which was a big no. bestseller and very popular. Tell me about it. would never have anything again. You know, yeah. So true. tell me when that, when that came out, uh, this sort of Victorian adventure, but well after the Victorian period. Yeah. Um, it, Bo Just was published in 24. Um, he had written several books before then and um including a couple 
that dealt with the Foreign Legion, and one, uh, The Wages of Virtue. It was made into a film starring Gloria Swanson. It's lost today, so we really have no idea whether it was any good. Uh, you know, he always claimed that he was a Foreign Legionnaire himself. There's clearly no way of proving such a thing. Um, he would have had to have been very young. Yeah. Because he goes to India as a teacher and has his wife and and first child when he goes there. And his life is really well, well documented at, from that point on. So he would have to have been 17 or 18 yeah. to be in the Foreign Legion. And when, I don't know, it doesn't seem plausible to me, but it's not impossible. Right. But not probable either. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a lot of Foreign Legion pulp fiction out there. Uh, and you, in particular, I know, suggest one book that he probably uh, cribbed from or kind of got some ideas from. To me, it's interesting. I mean, this is after World War One, which did not exactly put people in love with warfare and, and the uh, dignity and, and glamour of, of going to yeah. war. So he's writing kind of a nostalgic adventure story, which, not surprisingly, proves very popular. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the Foreign Legion was a smart thing to do right after the war because it all of it, all of it was so remote to most readers. You know, the the Arabs as enemies were not really enemies that any readers would have ever directly encountered and yeah. the Legion itself is just this strange regiment uh that was not, although it's the French Foreign Legion, uh, because it's foreign, it's not really tied to a country otherwise. So it seemed like a good way to get a good action war story told without bringing up bad memories of, because World War I was a horrible, horrible sure. experience, you know. Hollywood, in in the form of famous players Lasky, uh, bought the rights to it pretty quickly by 19 late 1925 and put it into production almost pronto you know at first they were going to shoot it in uh, really in North Africa and then it was 1926 when they were going to do that and that the Rift Rebellion was going on then, and the actual Foreign Legion was right. was was uh, actually fighting and so that's where they pulled back and they thought, well, the the American Sahara, as it were, and the Imperial Dunes, you know, it's a, a sand dune is a sand dune, right? So, uh, and, Right, uh, but it's interesting that uh, all the versions wind up picking this exact spot, that it seems to have been the perfect place to yeah. to do this, this story. Even the camps for the first two, um, we're in Buttercup Valley, which is at the bot, which which is the the flat, hard ground surrounded by the sand dunes. Herbert Brennan said when he was down there, the Herbert Brennan, the director of the 1926 film, um, he called it like like standing in a sugar bowl. Yeah, because it was just this flat, hard, scrub covered ground. And 
So that's where they built the camps. They needed massive camps for hundreds and hundreds of people to stay in while the films were on location. This is for the first two. The 1966 version, uh, they wimped out and stayed in a hotel. And, you ah. know, so, uh, you know, with swimming pools and air conditioning, and <laughs> that's hardly playing the game. But the uh, kids who made the parody version in 1939 lived in the fort while they while they filmed. So they would come driving down from San Diego and uh, with their sleeping bags and everything, and <laughs> would, they slept in Fort Zinderdiff. All right. So Herbert Brennan, the director of Peter Pan and other things, yep. a ma- major silent director, directs it with Ronald Coleman and big hit. Uh, I think it won the Photoplay Medal, which yeah. is an important early pre-Oscar uh, award. Then uh, there's a sequel, uh, which oddly enough has a future Bo Jest in it, uh, Gary Cooper, yep. which is uh, Bo Sabreur. Mm-hmm. What was that exactly? It was filmed up the coast um, in the Guadalupe Dunes. And it was, it took a character from Beaugest, uh Major Beaujolais, who is, if you remember the either of the first two films, he's the one who rides up with the reinforcements at the beginning of the film. And um, then in the sequel, which takes place afterwards, uh, with Gary Cooper, he's suddenly 30 years younger than yeah. he was in <laughs> the first film. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, it has a couple of other uh, characters from Beaugest, Uh although the film, as it was finally released, uh, really downplayed any connection with Beaugest. Um, they They used it in the publicity a little bit, but the film itself has almost no connection at all. Um, and then... The the fun thing was, uh, B.B. Daniels was making a movie called She's a Chic, a comedy uh, with Richard Arlen and also with William Powell, who was just repeatedly coming back to these things. Paramount was, was uh, trying to save a few bucks at the moment. And so all the sets that had been built for Beau Sabreur, as soon as they moved out, the She's a Chic company moved in shot everything on the same place. The climax of the film was they fooled the Arabs because there are a couple of movie guys, uh, traveling movie men who figure into the plot some way. And so they project onto the sand dunes images of the foreign legion attacking, which completely fools the Arabs and makes them, uh, run in terror. And, um, all that footage was from Bo Sabreur. <laughs> Audiences saw this footage from Bo Sabreur a good six months or so before they saw Bo Sabreur. So. Uh, that <laughs> seems seems a bad marketing choice for Bo Sabreur. <laughs> yeah, but it it apparently did pretty well uh, and mostly got good reviews. And um, I'd like to see it. You know the the trailer exists. And um, also there was a, a comedy short with Smith and Dale called The Arabian Shrieks. Yes. <laughs> and they used stock footage 
for both Bojest and Bo Sabreur. So from we have two or three sources with footage from Bo Sabreur, but the the film itself is gone. Yeah. All right, so and then there's a third one after that. Herbert Brennan returns in the early sound era, yeah. At R- RKO for Bo Ideal, which yeah, uh, what Ralph Forbes is he the? Mm-hmm. He comes back in the same role as in Bo Chess, and um, uh, you know I'm I'm not a critic, and I don't review films in this book. I don't, you know, I that's not what I do. I I'm not interested in telling you to see this or not see it. I'm just, I like to tell the stories of how they were made and so forth, but God almighty, Bowie Dial <laughs> is an awful film. Awful. I was um, watching a little clip of it and yeah, it's yeah. got, it's got all the sins of very early talkies. Just everything seems miscalculated to me. Uh, but I mean, the climactic battle is really a massive thing. And pretty impressive in his own right in these big sets they built. Um, so, I, you know, but interesting to me is in 1947, RKO made, uh, uh, started a production company or co- co-founded it in Mexico to remake RKO properties as Mexican films. And Bodie the Owl was one of them that they, they made as... Uh, uh, Hermano Ideal, and uh, it's actually much, much better. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a really good film, and so it's the, Span- were, it's the Spanish Dracula of Bojest movies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and they, they, uh, you know, it was made for a buck and a half, and you, you see, you know, a, the a big fort they built on a soundstage, which looks like a soundstage. Yeah, but um, by and large pretty good and they use a lot less uh stock footage from the first one than you would think all right so then we get to 1939 the uh the big remake yeah uh, with with gary cooper i mean he had already done things like lives of a bengal lancer so he was kind of in that that wheelhouse of international adventure things absolutely um and I guess, I mean, Gunga Din is the same year. So I guess that kind of adventure was in the air. I suppose, again, it's sort of distracting us from the reality of another impending war. So, Yeah. Although, you know, world events had their impact on the film because that's, that's why the evil commander is French in the, in the silent film and he's Russian in the Wellman remake. Uh, because they didn't want to offend France. It's often been said that France banned the silent version, but I can find no evidence that that was true. But they did protest it quite a bit. They were angry about it. And Paramount did not want to deal with that at all. So they tried their best. And they had... uh, a foreign legion officer is one of the two technical advisors on the film. After he saw the first rough cut, he demanded all of these cuts be made. And Paramount went along with most of them. Um, there were some, like you said, uh, you shouldn't show them propping dead bodies up in the embrasure yeah. of the wall. And, uh, 
that one, Paramount just said, well, come on. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's Bo Jest. That's the, that's the movie. Now, the yeah. interesting thing I think about remakes of silent hits in that period is, you know, they tend to be less impressive, you know, on a physical scale, epic scale, yeah. than the uh, silent did. I mean, the silence had you know, size and, and visuals to sell themselves. And talkies could, you know, cover some of that in dialogue, I guess. So that's sure. partly why they didn't. And they just probably weren't spending as much money in that period. Um, but Bojess comes pretty close to being as big a production as the silent before yeah. it, I think. Don't you? Absolutely. And uh, when I see, I like the 26 version a lot. And I think it's quite beautiful in most ways. Uh, but Herbert Brennan seemed to always keep his distance from the battle. You know what I mean? It, yeah. You, you're always seeing the sand dunes swarming with Arabs. But, you know, contrast that with the first scene of the Wellman battle scene where, you know, Francis McDonald as the scout, you know, comes to the gate and says, Toregs, and then it goes to this close-up of galloping hooves, and in this uncut shot, backs up to this one Arab riding a horse, and then backs up more, uh, a complete traveling shot to see hundreds and hundreds of others, and you're just right in the midst of it. It's got this visceral quality that Brennan never had, and so, you know, I think. And it is just as big. There are just as many extras and horses and so forth in the remake as in the original. But um, I think what it had in its favor was Wellman knew how to shoot a, an action sequence. Right. Um, what I will say is Wellman did not how to know how to shoot a comedy sequence. <laughs> At least uh, almost every you know, attempt a gag falls completely flat. All the ghastly gussy stuff, um, just cringing, but, uh, but man, he could, he could really shoot action like nobody's business. Hmm. All right. So they, they built their fort pretty much in the same spot as the, uh, as exactly. the silent, exactly. exactly. The same. So it's, <laughs> it's pretty much on the, the, uh, floor plan of, the, of the original. Yep. It's a similar fort, yeah. Not identical, but very similar. Okay. Uh, and then they just left it there. They didn't bury it like Cecil B. DeMille would have. And that's what allowed your your discovery, which I think in a lot of ways is the most fascinating part of this, is these kids just go and make their yeah. own Beaujest. That was That was a screw-up on Paramount's part. By the time they, you know, they wanted to leave it up for – a reasonable amount of time just in case because you never know when you have to do a last minute reshoot of something or whatever. So they left it up for a while. And then by the time it was time to tear it down, it was so hot that they can, they made a contract with a local man uh, to tear it down, to bulldoze it and cart it away, which he agreed to do. But, of course, who knows how long it took him to do it. And when he did, he didn't cart it away. He just buried it under the sand. Hmm. So when I show up 75 years later, it's all over the place. 
we just found big big piles of Fort Zinderdorf everywhere we looked. I've never been able to find out when they really took it down, but um, they finished shooting in March of 39, and the San Diego State boys came out in uh, Thanksgiving weekend. So it was, you know, a few months later, and it was still there. And it was a wreck, but they they did some real nice spiffing up of it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and I just saw uh, the Fablemans about Steven Spielberg's oh, early yeah. career, in which he stays staging things about as crazy with his high school buddies, you know, this big World War II scene and stuff like that. Sure. And, you know, it made me think of these guys. And they didn't go on to be uh, movie guys, although one of them, co-authors a book that led to a movie we've all seen well two uh, of them two of them well yeah. i don't know if we've all seen kitten with a whip but <laughs> but the one that uh the one we did also or you meant two of the guys yeah yeah two of the guys they were co-author uh h billy miller and, and bob wade and they wrote as wade miller or as Whit Masterson when right. they wrote Whit the Masterson. Badge of Evil, which became Touch of Evil. Yeah, so they they do kind of have their their second moment in in the movie business then. <laughs> um, but yeah, this movie, I mean, officially Paramount suppressed it, but you say that was kind of with a wink. Yeah, they didn't. When I first heard about it, because I read contemporary articles in the paper, they really played up that Paramount was making them destroy the print. And uh, Paramount didn't make them destroy the print at all. As you say, with a wink, they just said, you know, destroy the print, but we're not going to check up to see that you did. Yeah. You know, so just, you know, they they basically said, just don't go nuts with it. You know? <laughs> yeah. so, there was only one print. There was only one 16 millimeter print. No negative or anything. It was, you know, right out they developed the film and cut it, and that was it. And you say you know, you were talking to one of them, I think Robert Wade probably, and said, uh, "Boy, I sure wish I could see it. Too bad it's gone." Yeah. He said, oh, "I've got it right over here." Yeah. So, I'll, yeah, he said, "I'll I'll give you a VHS." So. Uh, <laughs> All right. So yeah. So you you dive into the many versions that follow, including. Uh, Marty Feldman's The Last Remake of Bojess, which is not the last remake of Bojess by now. Not at all. Uh, it's may- barely a remake at all. It's- right. It, well, yeah, it's actually based on The Four Feathers, isn't it? Yeah. More than anything. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, these these many different versions. Um, what do you think – I mean, is it just a nostalgia story at this point, or do you think there's still life in this and that we may get another one, you know, that it speaks to the modern know. day? You know, it's now been 40 plus years since the last one. We're pushing, what, 15 years since the last, even the last radio adaptation. So uh, I would I would love to see somebody do it, of course, because there's so much in the book that nobody's ever bothered to film. The 82 BBC production is much more thorough in terms of the original book. You know, the Wellman film is barely <laughs> faithful to the book at all. Yeah. Just in the in the broadest sense. But, um, you know, the first time I saw the 82 one, which was in 83, I didn't care for it at all because it's talk about somebody who doesn't know how to shoot a 
an action sequence. That director did not. But um, I saw it again about two years ago for the after many years of not seeing it. And I was surprised of how good it was and how well acted it is. Uh, it's all shot on video, which gives me a kind of creepy feeling. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that being said, you know, it's not like so many of those British TV shows that the exterior is on 16 millimeter and right, the right. interior is on, looks like a stage play. So at least this is all, you know, it's all video and it's all on location and they built a nifty fort. And uh, so there's, there's a lot to it to like. Yeah. Well, you know, who knows? I mean, an eight hour series on, on Netflix or Amazon, it could happen. You know, they've, <laughs> they've revived other things that seemed as gone before. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you never can tell, you know, never can tell because it's, is it not in the, uh, the public interest to have villainous Arabs now. So, although to be fair, in in most of the Bojest adaptations, the Arabs they're just as <laughs> these distant uh, distant people wearing robes and shooting. I don't know anything else you want to say about why you love this darn thing so much. Right, you're <laughs> claiming you don't love this darn thing so much, but you still devoted a lot of time to it. I yeah, I'm I'm deeply interested in it. I really I. You know, there's something about it that captivates me. And so finding all these other things and finding, all, you know, comic strips and yeah. and toys and uh, just all of this stuff, it's it seems to me that it's something that keeps going. They still make toys that are based on it. So I think that's the last remaining adaptation because they're not making any more movies about it or or radio shows, but your toys, you know, I think in the last year or so there was, I actually missed one because the book was already finished and uh. laid out when, I, <laughs> when it came around. So, link for the Kickstarter for The Complete Bojest by Frank Thompson will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Soon you'll be able to find it at Amazon, too. I'll update the link to include that when it happens. Now a clip from a very old movie you almost certainly have not seen. We wouldn't be in any danger if you hadn't interfered between me and that girl. Good thing you did interfere. That girl almost got it. That's what I want to talk about. No, I can't make the beast obey me anymore. But there's an old jungle law and a good one. When you can't make a girl behave, kill it. That's an order, boys. And I'll remember that, too. I trust you recognized one of the most recognizable voices in film history, Boris Karloff. 
The King of the Congo is a 1929 serial from the Mascot Studio. Actually, the first talkie serial, well, part talkie, as well as only the second talking film audiences had heard Karloff's voice in. Eric Grayson, that's his occasional Nitrateville handle, too, is a film collector and restorer who we last talked to in 2017 about Little Orphan Annie with Colleen Moore. He's been working on a restoration of The King of the Congo, and his work has been as full of pitfalls and cliffhangers as a jungle serial. I spoke with him from his home in Indianapolis. It's, it's the very first sound serial. It had sound recorded on discs. It's the first large part that Boris Karloff had in a in a, a movie that was speaking. Um, so, yeah, it's it's historically a lot of things. It's also the earliest surviving mascot serial. Well, yeah, let's talk about mascot. I mean, this, this is a studio that was one of the many small studios that wound up being folded into Republic by Herbert Yates so that Vera Herbert Ralston could have the career that we all treasure. Um, but yes, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, but yeah, tell me about Mascot. What was their their niche in, in the silent and early talkie world? They were famous for lots of action, kind of cheesy plots. Um, if you remember them for anything today, it's for The Phantom Empire, which is the only science fiction Western musical ever made. Um, It's not a good film, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Also, The Whispering Shadow with Bela Lugosi is another mascot serial. Their guy that was in charge was a fellow by the name of Nat Levine. And uh, he was the he was the money guy behind everything. He didn't have lots of money and you couldn't make lots of money on a serial anyway. So. The idea was always to make the make the serial as cheaply as you could. But this one has was filmed in the temples of Angkor Wat, according to an opening title. Yeah, and and as they say in uh, Wayne's World, and monkeys might fly out of my butt too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so one um, assumes that he bought some stock footage of Angkor Wat and mixed it in. Well, one assumes correctly, and in fact, we prove that by uh, looking at the camera negative that was on file at Library of Congress. He bought stock footage of Anchor Watt and had it cut into the footage that he shot in the Hollywood backlots, which I'll talk about in a minute. And the, the stock footage at Anchor Watt was actually printed on some sort of really icky stock, and it contaminated the rest of the footage. So whenever there was an Anchor Watt shot, uh, what happened was that it was rotting before anything else was, and those are the shots that are missing in a lot of uh, in a lot of the, the serial chapters. It's like, okay, well, this is gone. Uh, this was rotted. This was rotted. So we usually have to go to an alternate take on on some of this. Using footage from uh, Cambodia also uh, doesn't that uh, mean that we're putting African gorillas in in Thailand in this story? Oh, come on. We, we have. <laughs> We have African gorillas, we have Indian elephants, we have lions that are that are supposed to be not mountain, but they're African lions. We also have crocodiles and alligators together at the same time. I mean, there, if you want something that's that's biologically wrong, it's in this film. <laughs> okay. And uh, so, what about this uh, endeared you 
<laughs> endeared it to you so much that you wanted to spend all this time putting it together? Uh, nothing. <laughs> uh, I I know people say, oh, you must be obsessed with this film. I'm not obsessed with this film. I'm really not. Um, I, I'm obsessed with actually getting it done now because I started it and I've gotten grant money and I have to finish it or else I have to give the grant money back. And I spent the grant money on computers and assistance. So I have to finish it now. Right. Um, it's, it's a fun film. It was an important film. What happened was that many, many years ago, I bought a 16 millimeter print down of it from 35 and bought it from an old guy in New Jersey. And he had told me that, uh, that they had bootlegged a 35 millimeter and made five prints of it. And it was, it was hard to find. And I said, okay, fine. And I was told it was the silent version. Well, it turns out that many years later at Capitol Fest, a guy stopped me when we ran a chapter of, he says, Eric, you're an idiot. That's the sound version. And you're just missing the discs. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let, let's see if that's true. And, and, you know, I'd had this thing for 25 years. I didn't know. Yeah, okay. I guess maybe that's true. I, I didn't know. So I called Ron Hutchinson and I said, Hey Ron, do you have any discs for King of the Congo? He says, yeah, I got three or four of them. I'll send them to you. And lo and behold, it would sync up. I said, well, that's fun. Okay, well, you know, nobody's seen this in 70 years. So, you know, this was 10, 15 years ago now. Sure. So I said, okay, well, let's sync them up. I got a couple of um, chapters of this. We'll scan it. And I did, a, I did some grant work on that. And we, we did them. And, you know, the, the upshot of it was that the print wasn't that good. The image wasn't that great, but at least you had it and you could see sort of what this was like. So that was fine. And it kind of snowballed from there because it turns out that I got a message from George Willeman at Library of Congress. He says, I have got King of the Congo sitting on my desk of 35 millimeter. <laughs> and I said, well, no, you don't. He says, oh, yeah, we just got it. It's in a collection and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, long story about that, but I had to negotiate with the owner of it. It's just on file at Library of Congress. And we did that. And it turns out that she has the entire film. And I thought, oh, really? Okay. So I got a grant to do the whole thing. I said, well, this is going to be our chance to do it. We can, we can make this happen. And it turns out we found more discs and we found more stuff that was wrong with it. And as we got into it. The more I got into it, the more it looked terrible. And there were sections that were bad and there were sections that needed fixed and, and it just kind of cascaded into itself. So I, I ended up being on the hook to finish this thing. And the more I got into it, the more work it was. It's the ultimate can of worms. Right. Or the sweater that you started pulling on the string. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That's a really great analogy. So there's 35, but it had, decomposition or there were parts missing or what what's the story on the on um, the best material yeah. it, it's 35 and it there was decomposition and there were parts missing okay um it turns out it, it's it's a hodgepodge okay so there was decomposition in every reel of negative that we found uh and we found a bunch of uh uh we, we found a bunch of missing footage. Uh, they, they had some negative and they had some positive 
And it turns out that the all the negative was decomposing. The 35 had been farmed out. The 35 positive prints had been farmed out to stock footage places. So, for example, in the days of thrills and laughter, the Youngson film, it turns out that they took footage from the 35 millimeter and cut it into the days of thrills and laughter. So chapter seven is actually missing the exact footage that's in the days of thrills and laughter. Right. Luckily, we had the negative for that. So I was able to put it back. Um, and so you, you find that, yeah, the 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 climax is missing here. And oh, the the gorilla footage is missing here. And oh, yeah, the Uncle Watt footage is rotted out of the negative here. So you're never quite sure what you're missing. And, you know, the thing is, it's like if you were restoring a feature from that time, it'd be like 72 minutes or something. But you're doing a serial, so it's what, like three and a half hours of total footage or something? It just went over with that minute of footage. It just went over three and a half hours. Okay. So it's 21 reels instead of six or seven. Uh, and there were 41 reels of nitrate at Library of Congress that we went through, and we scanned every one of them, and I don't believe that anything is was not used in some way. Okay, so there, there were 41 reels, 41 10-minute reels at Library of Congress that we scanned. Then my 16 millimeter, we scanned most of it and used that for inserts. And there's probably three, four, five minutes of of uh, 16 millimeter that we used for fill footage because there was no 35 to cover it. And then we just found in Chicago uh, a few weeks ago, one of the, there was a collector there that had the negative that was used to make my 16 millimeter print. Yeah. And that's now Library of Congress being used to upgrade the 16 millimeter footage. So that's going to be scanned. We're going to pop that in too. And there's a foreign archive that just reported that they have uh, 2,000 feet of 35 millimeter of King of the Congo. And we're not sure what that is yet. And they're talking about expatriating that, which may happen. Not sure if it's even footage that we need. Uh, and also, I forgot to mention that Museum of Modern Art uh, had 1,000 feet of King of the Congo in 35 millimeter. And it turned out that it was a highlight reel from the movie. And I, I think I used every scrap of footage that they had in that too, to restore this. So it's, it's really a hodgepodge. I think there are five different prints in the film. For something that, I mean, was surely forgotten pretty quickly. Cause I mean, everything from 1929 is pretty much forgotten pretty quickly. It seems like a lot of people wound up with prints of it. What's, how did it get to so many places? Well, the reason it got to so many places was that it was distributed far and wide. What they would do is they would make prints of stuff uh, and you would buy the print. You would distribute this on what was called a life of print basis for um, states' rights is what they called it. And so there were a lot of prints made. Uh, there weren't, unfortunately, a lot of discs made, which is a problem, but um, there were a lot of prints made and it was run a lot. And then it got sort of accidentally surreptitiously reissued when Boris Karloff became a star. Right. But the problem was that they never bothered to reissue it with an optical track, which is what would have made it, you know, it would have shown up on television if it had had an optical track, but nobody ever reprinted it that way. 
Uh, it was never redone any other way, but with discs and the discs are fragile and break. And you know, that's another issue. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Cause it seems like on Facebook, almost every week you've got a post about, yeah, we just found real four disc two, but we're still missing real two disc four or something like that. So what's the film is 21 reels and we are currently missing chapter one, real one, chapter one, real two, chapter three, real one, chapter three, real two, chapter seven, real one, and chapter nine, real two, okay. and everything else we have. But what about uh, audio for all the pieces that had audio? Oh, for all the audio that's missing, uh, we got actors to uh, redub the audio. Uh, we hired lip readers to uh, find some of that footage. I had, we had the script for it, which doesn't match the dialogue that they actually recorded. So uh, it's been kind of a mess that way. I know a lot of people said, well, why don't you just put titles in? And I didn't put titles in for a couple of reasons. Um, if I did that, it would change the length of the, the movie, sure. which I didn't want to do. And someday somebody's going to find the, the other discs. You know that as soon as I put this out, somebody said, oh, I have six copies of every disc. So, <laughs> yeah. you, know, that, you, know, you know that's going to happen. Uh, and so... I didn't want to do that. And I was afraid of burning in subtitles on it because right. then someday somebody's going to have, you know, the only copy of this that survives is going to have my goofy burned in titles that are wrong. And then we're going to find the disc. So I said, you know, if I do this this way, then someday somebody's going to find uh, the disc and they'll just be able to plaster what they have the right stuff over what we did, which was our best, most educated guess. But fortunately, there's only one dialogue scene in every um, in every reel, so it's not really that bad. Uh, and you know, there's maybe two or three minutes of dialogue and everything. The rest of it's just music and effects. So you're really only talking about five or six missing dialogue scenes, and that's not too bad. You know, there 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 are some problems with it, but there's no actual huge plot divulged and any of those, because normally what you're finding in these is that all the action scenes are silent because they were shooting those on location. And then all the dialogue scenes, they, they had microphones in like two sets. And so the microphones in the, the two sets, they're sitting there and, and doing all the, the plot stuff that they can in those, in those uh, little, little sets. And then they go out and do the action in some other place. So most of the critical stuff is silent. Uh, and then they they sit around in the, um, oh, in the, the canteen and talk about stuff. And then there's a, a place called the plunder room where they have a bunch of ivory that they do a lot of dialogue to. And then that's, that's about it. It's probably, um, more watchable when, when it's largely a silent film, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, it is. It is more watchable as a silent film. However, if you watch it completely silent, which is what the lovely YouTube copies are, <laughs> um, then what you'll find is that there are large sections of it where there's no, there's, there's no titles and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, this movie has been tagged as a lousy film because it's been transferred, uh, from terrible, terrible prints up to, uh, YouTube. And then they just threw an organ score on it 
and they transferred at about 18 frames a second, and it was intended to be transferred at 2024. 20, so it, it turns out that this is actually a much better film than its reputation is. Now, is it a great film? No, it's not. Uh, it's one of the better mascot serials, I have to tell you. Um, it's got a lot of fun scenes in it, and we, we missed the most fun in the whole film, which is the dinosaur that shows up uh, in most of the reels. Well known one of the most convincing dinosaurs this side of Flash Gordon. I mean, it's just <laughs> pretty amazing. So what is it, a, uh, an iguana with stuff stapled to its back or what? I think it's, I think it's a monitor lizard, but yes, I, that's exactly what it is. Uh, in in uh, a little miniature set that's been tailored to look like Angkor Wat. And then they have a little inset at the bottom where the actors can kind of sort of almost interact with it. Uh, <laughs> okay. So it, it's... Um, it's not exactly Willis O'Brien, okay, but it's fun, and we've played this with an audience in a number of places, and and it's uh, it it does play. People enjoy it. Well, yeah, I mean the title being King of the Congo, it certainly suggests a certain 1933 film. Um, it, <laughs> you're you're, <laughs> you're laughing at uh, the idea of them even being in the same ballpark. Um, no, I I really do think that. Marion Cooper saw this film and drew some inspiration from it. Um, I don't think he drew a lot of inspiration from it, but I think there's an influence that, uh, that this had on King Kong. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in my intro for uh, one of the live shows we did, I, I showed some of the shots in King of the Congo and then especially son of Kong, I think is reminiscent of this film. But yeah, I mean, they're not on the same level at all. I think just the miniature sets in Son of Kong and King Kong dwarfed the entire cost of King of the Congo. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Those were shot on standing sets. In fact, we, we tracked down, we're still trying to track down where the, the main set of the temple was located, but it seems that it was on the Vitagraph back lot and it was shot on sets that were used in the 1926 Don Juan. So if you look at Don Juan, you're actually looking at sets that, that are used in, in King of the Congo in, in a lot of places. It actually has the audacity to cut together films that are made in a, sets that are made in a Spanish right. style with Angkor Wat and costumes that sort of match. And it's like, oh yeah, we're supposed to believe this is the same thing. And it's uh, really... <laughs> yeah. Now you had a showing uh, with a special guest. Tell me about that. Uh, we had a showing with Sarah Karloff. Uh, we may have some more showings with Sarah. Uh, Sarah is Boris Karloff's daughter. King of the Congo was actually made before she was born. Um, and it turns out that uh, Sarah was kind of a late in life baby for Boris. And uh, she had never seen this movie at all. So I, I told her about what was going on and she said, Oh, this is fun. And she's been aware of some of the stuff that's happened over the years with, with this being restored. And she said, Oh, I'd love to show this. I'd love to show up for a showing. And, uh, she, she did, she signed autographs. Um, she looks just like her dad. I don't tell her I said that cause yeah. she'll, she'll punch me. <laughs> but she, I mean, she just looks so much like her dad. Uh, and she had a, uh, a COVID mask on 
And with the COVID mask, you're looking right into the eyes of Boris Karloff. <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, the, the eyes of, uh, what, was it, what is he, Amenhotep in, in Mummy? You're being hypnotized. Yeah, yeah, he kind of, he kind of thought about that. You know, it's like, oh, this is Imhotep again. Yeah, yeah it's, Imhotep, it's, yeah. It's, it's eerie how much she looks like her dad. Right. Um, but she's, she's very smart, very funny. Uh, and she really loved this film, so this is uh, this is this is really cool. We're going to try and get her, and we haven't recorded any of the commentaries for the Blu-ray yet, but we're going to try and get her to at least be a guest for one of the one of the chapters and talk about her dad and talk about this. Uh, this is a film that never got mentioned by her father because he'd forgotten about it long long ere she was born. Uh, but nonetheless. It's a great thing for her to see, and she's hilarious. Now, of course, we also ran it in uh, November, which is right before her birthday and right before her father's birthday, because her father and she are born on the same day. Huh. Um, and so we got we brought out a birthday cake, and it turns out just by coincidence that she had been on her father's episode of This Is Your Life, huh. and I uh, I dug that up. And they had a birthday cake for her on that, too. So just before we brought out the birthday cake, which you didn't know about, I ran this little clip of her in uh, This Is Your Life. And then they brought out the birthday cake there. And then we brought out the birthday cake for her there in uh, in real life. It was that was a lot of fun, too. Now I heard the word Blu-ray. So what's what are the plans for this next? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the plans for this next are for me to get. Um, um, all of the footage that we have waiting on getting scanned, scanned, and then we'll upgrade the rest of the, the stuff. Uh, there are still a bunch of things that I need to do to fix. Uh, there's some, some stuff with some nitrate decomposition that I want to fix that are, it's not quite there yet. It was good enough to show for a public show, but, but if I put it out on Blu-ray at this point, I'm going to get all the Weiner boys going, you know, I could have fixed chapter six, real three. And you know, I don't want to hear <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, I, you know, it's going to get fixed as much as it can. So I don't have to deal with the Weiner boys. Cause I know <laughs> I've been there and I've done that. I've seen it. Anything that can reasonably be fixed will be fixed. The, the upgrades will be happening. Uh, we were supposed to do the Kickstarter and it was supposed to be done this month. But at this point, I'm still waiting on scans for at least five reels or more film and probably more like 10 reels or more film. And so I got to, I got to wait for that to happen so that we can decide, okay, this is good. This is not good. So I'm hoping to have this on Blu-ray and DVD by April. Wow. That's my, that's my goal. Uh, and I'm kind of at the mercy of the mails and the scanning and, the levels of stuff and all that. And remember this also happened. I got, I got the first scans of Congo in, in October of 2019, just before COVID hit. And was, so I've had to deal with all this stuff and COVID and all kinds of other fun stuff. Uh, and then plus we found discs all over the country I actually had to have discs shuttled, from Maine down to New York City. And the reason I did that was I didn't want to ship those because they were shellac discs. 
So there, there have been people all over the world that have helped with this thing. It's just insane. I'm actually hoping to do a bunch more stuff, um, and I'm hoping to farm it out to, to other guys. That's what we said on our Kickstarter, and I really am trying to do that because basically I've got an infrastructure to do a lot more now. We've got we've got these machines that are so powerful that you know you you turn the the switch on and the lights dim. So is it like one guy does image stabilization and the next guy does something else, or how how does it work? It depends on what it is that we need that week. I Sometimes I have one guy doing stabilization. Sometimes I'll just hand a reel off to a guy and say, do this one. Uh, sometimes it, uh, I've got a guy that does audio for me and he's just doing audio mixing and stuff like that. Uh, I've got another guy that um, that is uh, Thad Komarowski who sure. does a lot of work for other folks. I just have him do de-dirting. So he's got the best dirting software. So I hand them to this and I'll, I'll say, okay, so it's been stabilized. We've gotten all the worst nitrate decomp out of it. Now de-dirt it. And then it gets handed back to me and I look at it and say, okay, this is past muster and I'll do the last polish on a lot of it. So it's, it's a, a lot of, I still, even with four guys working for me, I will still tell you I've done probably 80% of the work. For audio, what's the quality of the of the disc? I mean, this is 1929, so we know that it's a very early stage in, in uh, film audio. So the original audio recordings were not great, but they were okay. Uh, they were lower than the regular audio that you would get because... He used a cheap company, and it was it was a Vitaphone knockoff. It wasn't actually real Vitaphone. We had uh, Seth Winner, who's an Emmy-winning uh, transfer guy, do all of our audio transfers for us, and we started all the way from scratch with him. And he's done a wonderful job of cleaning that stuff, but it's still there are still sections where it's not great. Well, you know, I noticed too, like in the clip that we'll play before this, other people don't know necessarily how to speak well for the microphone at this point. And Karloff just shines through because he's such a distinctive voice, but I think he also had a reasonably good sense of how to enunciate or just by chance happen to enunciate well for sound. Oh, that's certainly true. Um, they've been told how to act. Uh, Jacqueline Logan, bless her heart, has been taught a mid-Atlantic uh, enunciation accent. So She's part British and part East Coast, and I want to find my father. Yeah. And so she's done a lot of that all the way through the, the movie, and they are also being told not to speak too quickly. And that's an old stage thing that they used to get. And the reason that you did that was that in those days, you were in a big, booming house, and you were competing with yourself for echoes. So if you speak very slowly, then the echoes die out before your next word gets out. So the the ending scene with Karloff is just painfully slow. And it's painfully slow on purpose and over-enunciated because they want you to hear everything. So I'm sure the director is telling them, slow down, slow down, slow right. down. <laughs> okay, okay. It doesn't play well today, but in 1929, you could actually hear it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, something that King of the Congo and um, Little Orphan Annie have in common, which is that, you know, this movie has been shown without its dialogue for, for years right. and years. Uh, and it just doesn't make any sense. And it's been run too slow for years and years and doopy prints for years and years. So it's like, okay, this is not great, but okay, yeah. we can do better. <laughs> uh, 
Watch Nitrate Villain the months ahead for information on how to get Eric Grayson's restoration of The King of the Congo. Now one more clip, this time in French. Enfin, passons! Un jour, j'écrirai mes mémoires. Qu'est-ce que tu fais? Euh, tu, tu le vois, je, je, je m'entraîne pour les journalistes. Ah, trop tard, tout est consommé. Écoute l'article du matin. La fin d'un cauchemar. Monsieur Durand, trois heures après l'avoir défié, tombe entre les mains de la police grâce à l'énergie et à l'habileté de Monsieur Monet. That's The Murderer Lives at 21, the first film directed by H.G. Clouseau, who would go on to direct Le Corbeau, Diabolique, and The Wages of Fear, among others. It was made for a short-lived French studio called Continental Films. Now, short-lived French studio is kind of redundant in the vintage era, but this one had a particular reason for coming to an abrupt halt. It was backed and run by the Nazis during the French occupation. And even films and filmmakers that had no particular Nazi content or messaging would be tainted by their association with it. Christine Leteux, whose Nitrateville screen name is Anne Harding, is a French film scholar and translator of, among other things, Kevin Brownlow's The Parade's Gone By. She offers the first in-depth history of this studio and the work there of directors like Clouseau, Maurice Turner, and Marcel Carnet in Continental Films, French Cinema Under German Control from the University of Wisconsin Press. I spoke with her from Paris and started by asking her to set the political scene when Continental was formed. So basically, uh, France was invaded by the Germans, you know, in a in May, June 1940, and by mid-June they reached Paris. And uh, basically a good part of the north of France and all the way down to the, the, the coast, the Atlantic coast, was occupied by the Germans. Uh, there was only what we used to call a non-occupied zone that remained unoccupied until the end of November 1942, which was managed by what we call the Vichy government, led by PETA. Um, as for the, the, the film industry situation in, um, in June 1940, well, everything was at a standstill. Uh, since the invasion, you know, no studio was working, nobody was working anymore, except except one tiny studio in the south of France, which was um, the property of Marcel Pagnol, but he was very unusual, as he was his own producer, and he owned his own studio, he even had a lab where he could process his own films, this is why he was able to finish a film at that period. But uh, the rest of the film people were just jobless, you know, and many of them were, particularly the technicians, you know, were sort of starving, you know, desperate to find a job and there was none. And this is during, you know, the, um, the autumn of 1940 that uh, Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda mi minister, decided to send a German producer to France to create a company which would be laid by Germans, but would have uh, would be following French laws. And that company was called Continental Film. And obviously the idea behind the name is to show that this company was part of the wider continent, you know, with Germany. <laughs> and uh, 
because French cinema was at a standstill, it was very easy for them, you know, to pick up talents, you know, filmmakers, directors, technicians, actors. And they were faced with one big dilemma. Either they signed, you know, a contract with Continental and French, the French film industry would be allowed to resume its work, or they didn't sign and the Germans could decide not to make films in France at all. And France, you know, would not be able to resume its work. So some filmmakers, you know, decided to sign a contract, but they, they made provision, you know, they decided, okay, we make film, but we don't want to make any propaganda film. We want to select our own projects. And also we want to make them only with a French, people. We don't want to go to work uh, in Germany or to work with German people. Um, that was accepted. And um, finally, you know, uh, French film production resumed only, you know, in February 1941. Yeah. Now, despite uh, the setup, which put the, the Germans firmly in charge, I mean, as you say, they, they weren't just making propaganda films. I mean, it, really, they were what they were trying to do was keep the market for, you know, just light entertainment. I suppose figuring that occupied people are happier if they have movies to go to uh, and will cause less trouble that way. Yes, there's this idea behind it, obviously. I mean, the idea was also also to have a commercial success. I mean, I think, you know, Crevet, the, the producer, you know, the head of Continental, was mostly a guy who was looking for a business proposition that would give profits, you know, he wanted to make money, basically. So the idea is to make commercial pictures, you know, whether they're thrillers or comedies or whatever, that people would go to see in France, but not only in France, because the idea was also to export these pictures. And they were exported, you know, in Belgium, Switzerland, I think also in Spain, you know, in various countries where Germany could still export pictures and, and therefore make money. Um, well, let's talk about uh, Alfred Graven, who is almost out of a movie. I mean, he was a, he was a German who was, what you, you said, six foot seven. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, so he was a studio chief and in many ways he behaves just like any studio chief. It's like reading about Harry Cohn or somebody, except he could literally have the Gestapo pick your family up and put some pressure on you to sign a contract. And he was very good at getting people to sign contracts at well below their regular rates. Imagine that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and yet some people didn't find him that disagreeable. Uh you know, there's a there's someone I think Cluzo or someone refers to him as almost friendly, which you know kind of kind of sums up how you how you would have felt facing him was that you know he might be putting on the charm, but you know the the iron fist was not far behind. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and uh, I mean the few people who say you know good things about Greven. Uh, I mean, obviously there's Cluzo, but Cluzo was you know a, a bit of a 
peculiar case, really, because he, he was the only French uh, person, you know, working at Continental who was really friendly with Greven, who would go out with him and dine with him and so on. I mean, nobody else did that, you know. He was, uh, he was just, I would say, licking the boots of, uh, of his boss, basically. I mean, the fact that the boss was German, you know, was of no consequence to him, you know, he didn't care. <laughs> Yeah. Whereas uh, most of the other directors, you know, resented, you know, Greven, even even the people who'd worked with him previously, you know, in Germany. Because funnily enough, you know, French cinema had many co-productions in Germany just before the war. Yeah. And some of the directors had already worked with Greven, but that didn't make it, you know, any easier for them to work with him, really. Yeah, so generally um, directors or screenwriters or are- actors they'd be encouraged to you know sign a contract with continental um which many of them you know even if reluctantly uh did fairly quickly because there was no other work to be had the films did not seem objectionable if anything we're kind of surprised that uh, the ones that seemed to be fairly clearly uh you know anti-fascist in some way i mean the the, the famous one uh Le Mans du Diable, um, mm-hmm. which you know has played on TCM here in America. I'm forgetting its yeah. American name or its yeah. English name at the moment. But anyway, uh, well, it seemed Carnival of Sinners or something. Cardinals, like that. yeah, Carnival of Sinners is what it was called on TCM. Yeah, yeah it's um, funny, funny, funny name actually. But well, never mind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> directed by Maurice Turner, who of course had spent time in Hollywood, directed Mary Pickford and things like that. <laughs> Um, but was back in France and, and has, you know, the, the implication that the devil is somebody that the uh, French should stand firm against is in the film. So it's interesting. I mean, the degree of relative freedom that uh, people had to, you know, kind of sneak messages by, uh, is kind of surprising I don't think, you know, um, Alfred Greven was that clever, you know, probably a lot of these little little messages completely escaped him, you know, and um, he, he was just looking at having, you know, a big name, you know, a big actress or a famous actor or one film and, and that's it really. I don't think he was, you know, that clever enough, you know, to, to, right. to notice, you know, things like that. And you're right because, uh, you know, the, the, the Devil's Hand, you know, La Main du Diable, the, the Turner film, actually was written by Jean-Paul Le Chanois, who was Jewish, communist, and <laughs> a, a resistance fighter, you know. And uh, obviously, you know, he, he always tried to sneak in, you know, little things, you know, in the various films he wrote for Continental. That's that's actually very funny. And uh, he actually joined, you know, the company specifically because um, uh, because he wanted to create, you know, uh, groups of uh, resistant fighter within the company, you know, and he did, you know, in the various studios. I mean, I suppose in some way, hiding in the system is one of the best places to be as a, as a, as a resistance fighter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's even funnier, actually, because he joined, uh, originally, he had no intention, you know, in joining Continental, because he considered it, you know, a collaborationist company, you know, a German company. 
But what happened to him is when he tried working with the French producers, he was hounded by anti-Semite, you know, and each time he started a film, the producer, the French producer was flooded, you know, with uh, poison pen letters, you know, naming him a Jew and so on. So the producers were, were scared, you know, and didn't want to work with him. So in the end, he decided to join Continental. Because funnily enough, according to the laws, you know, the anti-Semite laws of the time, while he was born Jewish, you know, his real name was Dreyfus, um, <laughs> the, the, fact, the fact that his uh, three grandparents were, were Aryan, you know, it was enough to be considered non-Jewish. And he had actually a card, you know, delivered by the German authority, you know, stating that he was not Jewish. Uh, <laughs> this is why... He managed to join Continental, and once he was in Continental, you know, he was free uh, at last, you know, of the poison pen letters because people didn't didn't dare, you know, denounce him, you know, to the Germans. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of poison pen letters, that brings us to Le Corbeau. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, is this his second film? Yes, his second film in Continental. Yeah. His second, his second film, full stop, actually, because before that he was just a, a screenwriter. Right. And, yeah, for him, Continental gave him a chance to break into directing, uh, which he exactly. did with yeah. The Murderer Lives yeah. at 21. And then, yeah, Le Corbeau is a film about uh, a, a town sort of tearing itself apart because poison pen letters start being sent around. And that was that was one that got Clouseau in a certain amount of. I mean, he was he was accused pretty strongly and not without reason of having collaborated, and his response seemed to be basically, "Hey, I don't like anybody." So, <laughs> well, it's true that Clouseau was not, you know, a very likable person. You know, I mean, really, I mean, I, I've been through reams of. Uh, of documents, you know, where people describe their relationship with Clouseau and his girlfriend, you know, uh, Susie Dolaire was also really, really annoying. Um, and, and, really, and, and really, you know, Clouseau was really uh, very unlikable, you know, uh, but he was very talented, you know, and everybody had to recognize that when Le Corbeau came out, everybody said, it's a masterpiece. And I agree, really, the film has uh, stood the stand of time and it, it's, it is a masterpiece in the history of film cinema. It's um, it, it's just absolutely amazing, you know, that he was actually allowed to make such a dark picture, you know, within Continental. And I'm not sure actually the the Greven realized, you know, how dark it was going to be, you know, uh, because when he read the script, you know, he probably didn't didn't realize. Yeah. But when it when it came out, you know. Immediately, you know, there was problems because first, you know, the um, the German authority, you know, refused to release it in uh, in Germany because they thought, oh gosh, this picture, you know, is 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 toxic, you know, we can't show that in Germany, and uh, <laughs> yeah, which was kind of the attitude was, hey, it's not it's not being nice to the French, our our new allies occupied France. Um, so the, it seemed like the Germans were sort of looking out for the French more than, than Clouseau was. Well, um, it's, it's all a question of a context, you know. I mean, actually, you know, the story of, uh, of Le Corbeau is, is a genuine, I mean, originally it's a real story, you know, a woman who wrote uh, poison pen letters, you know, in 1917 in France. 
um, there was a script which was actually a story where line was already written, you know, before the war. And Clouseau actually took it over when he had a chance, you know, to make it at Continental, except that he made it, you know, really at his own image. He made it even darker, you know, really, really dark. Um, but if he had made the film, you know, for a, for a French producer, he would not have caused the same uproar. I mean, the problem there is that he was making a film where he was criticizing French society with German money, you know. Yeah. So this is why, you know, he, he had problem and he was not the only one. I mean, Henri Lecoin, who made Les Inconnus dans la maison, was also heavily criticized because the, the film is, you know, is taken from a Georges Simenon novel. And it's the same, you know, it's, it's a very dark criticism, you know, of middle class society. And uh, he also had to defend himself uh, and said, you know, he was not specifically making a, an anti-French film, you know, but but he was making, you know, a, a dark picture, you know, after Georges Simenon. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing with that one, too, is that the the villain turns out to be a Jewish character and the the French screenwriters and and so on really wanted to change that because they just felt it was it was piling on the Jews in a way that would not have been of course, of course, yeah. true in say the mid thirties. So mm. although it's not like France was unfamiliar with anti Semitism up to that point. But uh yeah, I mean so how were issues like that dealt with? Well, I mean, you know, within Continental, it was very hard. I mean, the, the director of that film was called Henri Decoin. And I must say, uh, when I read, you know, the papers and all the the files I found on him, I, I must say I have really a real respect for him because he really fought back. I mean, he, he never took anything for granted, you know, within Continental. You know, he, he was always fighting the boss. And um, he nearly ended up being arrested by the Gestapo. I mean, really, you know, it was that bad, <laughs> his relationship with, with Greven. Um, and really, he, he wanted to make that film because he thought, you know, the, the script was really fascinating. But he hated the idea that the Simonon had made uh, the, the young boy, you know, a Jew. And apparently Greven bought the novel specifically because, you know, the murderer was a Jew, of course. So he did everything he could, you know, to sort of um, make it less blatant. And actually, the, the young chap, you know, who plays the part in the film, you know, Marcel Mouloudji, was actually not uh, not Jewish. He was, um, I mean, his father was from Northern Africa. But however, I would say that Decoin probably managed because when I read the, the original the reviews, you know, when the film came out. And at the time, the press in France was evil, you know, absolutely full of anti-Semite and so on. But I couldn't find a single anti-Semitic, you know, comment in any of the reviews. They all concentrated more on the social issues, you know, the fact that the film was uh, really an attack on, on middle class. Yeah, so uh, you, as a director, you could kind of get away with arguing with them to some extent, I'm sure based in part on how much they cared about the prestige you brought to it. Um, mm -hmm. With stars, I thought it was interesting. I mean, they really want, you know, they were kind of starstruck. We knew that about Goebbels anyway, but you know, there's, there's the, uh, 
sort of publicity trip to Germany at one oh, point. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that you may people may have seen in the sorrow and the pity some newsreel mm-hmm. footage of that. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about you know how something like that came about. Well, I mean, it was actually an idea, uh, a propaganda idea, obviously, by the Germans. You know, they, they wanted to have uh, uh, French uh, movie people, you know, going to Germany to present, you know, one continental picture, which was released in Berlin at the time, you know, in March 1942. So they extended invitation into various, you know, film people. And they obviously all resented the idea of having to go to Germany, you know, right in the middle of the war. But they were, I mean, they applied pressure, obviously, you know, they were told that they would revoke their work permit or either, you know, another one, you know, for example, at the film, uh, film theaters in Paris. And she was told, if you don't go, we'll close your film theaters. But most interestingly, that I found the testimony of a screenwriter um, called André Legrand. And he he has a very interesting history because he is from Alsatian descent. Uh, But he was born in Paris because, uh, as you probably know, uh, you know, the the Alsace was occupied by uh, by the Germans from 1871. And a lot of French Alsatian moved, you know, in other parts of France to to escape that. So he resented the Germans, you know, strongly and even more the Nazi because he had wrote an anti-Nazi book, you know, just before, just right. prior to the occupation. Nevertheless, he insisted, you know, he came to, to Germany and he had no choice because of his anti-Nazi book. He was told, you know, if you don't do it, you know, you have serious trouble, you know, which means probably going to prison or even worse, you know. And he, and he tells the story, the inside story of this of this trip, which was up to now unknown. I mean, in general, you know, the Max Ophuls, uh, no, sorry, not Max Ophuls, uh, Marcel, Marcel Ophuls, the Marcel Ophuls documentary, you know, Sorrow and the Pity, shows obviously that clip, you know, from the French newsreels. And it had become, you know, symbolic of collaboration, you know, of uh, French film people with the Germans. But in actual fact, none of them, perhaps apart from Susie Delaire, that she was really quite stupid. You know, nobody really wanted to, to go on that trip. You know, they did it because they were forced to. But what is sad is, that, you know, in the end, the, well, the film people were really targeted, you know, for being, you know, nasty collaborators, you know, in quotes. Uh, whereas, in fact, you know, with what I found, it's far more complex. And really, as I say, none of them were really that keen, you know, in in going to Germany. And in the end, actually, the trip, I mean, the propaganda trip didn't work that well. And and Goebbels decided not, you know, to pursue the the idea, really. Well, let's talk a little about how you research this, because, you know, you say it's it's the first real full-length study of this studio, I imagine, you know, for many years, people just didn't want to mess with it. And then after a certain point, they kind of, they knew the story, they thought. Um, So what did you find that sort of changed how people saw it? Well, actually, because my previous book is a biography of Maurice Tourneur. And Maurice Tourneur was one of the main, and you know, directors of Continental, because he made five films with them. So when I was working on the on the Turner biography, I started going, you know, to various archives in Paris to try to find 
documents, you know, relating to that period. And I found a gold mine, really. I started looking at the, you know, there was a purification process, you know, which was organized by the film industry just after the war, you know, where everybody would work, you know, with Continental or other film producer to explain, you know, uh, their work in front of um, not not exactly a jury, but a group of um, resistant people, you know, within the film industry. And what is great is all that was taken down by shorthand and then later, you know, typed. Sure. And um, and it's 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 brilliant because you get you get the question, you get the answers. It's it's like you know being you know, a witness there, you know, and listening to what the people are, are saying. And what is great is that that was done, you know, just after, you know, Paris was liberated, you know, they started doing that, you know, Paris was liberated in, um, in August 1944. And the purification process of the film industry started in September, October. So it was still very, very fresh in people's mind, you know, so they could tell their own story. So not only did I find, you know, many things about Tourneur, but then I realized that there was, you know, a whole story, uh, an incredible story, because I could find, you know, the, the screenwriters, I mean, all the technicians worked, you know, not only just the famous people, but also the little people, and the little people are also very interesting, you know, like the old Russian technician who worked at the Biancourt studios. I mean, I couldn't believe it, because suddenly I was faced with with many people which I'd encountered before, you know, in silent film, you know. Um, and they were still working, you know, in French cinema at that time, and many of them were working for Continental. So you, you got a uh, an intro for this book from Bertrand Tavernier, which I was impressed by. I mean, it must have been a few years ago since he has since passed away. What... Yeah, yeah, well, it, it was when my book was released in France, you know, it was released in autumn uh, twenty seventeen. Okay. And uh, and I knew that Bertrand would be very interested because he made a film, you know, we're dealing with that period and with Continental particularly, uh, a film called Laissez Passer uh, right. from 2002. And, um, and he's trying to describe the atmosphere within the company. And he, he loved my book because he discovered, you know, a lot of details which had escaped him at the time, because obviously the archives had not been open at the time. And uh, he had to rely only on hearsay from the few people who were still alive at the time, you know. Yeah. yeah. So whereas I, has, I was able to, to look at, you know, as I say, everybody who ever worked, you know, within Continental. And that's how I, I managed, you know, to draw this uh, complete picture, you know, of the company and the people who worked in there. Did, I mean, anybody else of note really face serious consequences? I mean, you'd think Cluzo could have been, you know, basically blackballed, but I mean, his, his, Greatest period follows pretty close after the war. Things like Diabolique and Wages of Fear and so on. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, at first he had some trouble. I mean, that's for sure. Uh, he was barred from working, you know, for a, you know a year or something like that. But I mean, the the sentencing at the time was not definite. You know, if you were sentenced, you were always able to appeal, and this is what he did. 
And by the end of 1946, he resumed his work and he restarted making film. You know, he made des Orfèvres, you know, uh, in, he restarted making film in 1947, you know. So yeah. he, he always uh, shows himself as being, you know, the victim of... Uh, of uh, nasty purificators and so on, but it's not true. I mean, really, I mean, uh, Clouseau managed to, to get through, you know, pretty easily, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And then Greven, I mean, he went back to Germany, I guess. Well, he, he, he was only very shortly in prison by the, by the Soviets, I think, okay. you know, in, East, in Eastern Germany, but not very long. And then he moved to the West. And very early on, he wanted to resume his career as film producer. But uh, at first, it was a bit difficult. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, his past caught up with him. You know, everybody knew he was a Nazi. I mean, I forgot to mention that he actually joined the Nazi party in 1931. I mean, even before Hitler was in power, you know, just to show that the guy was not exactly nice. Yeah. And, um, and uh, but in the end, yeah, in the fifties, he created his own his own little company, and he made you know various films, which, frankly, you know nowadays are not considered really important, you know, in film history. You know, if he had not been the head of a continental film, I think Raven would have been completely forgotten, really. Sure. And funny, and funnily enough, he actually even directed, you know, documentaries. He made documentaries to promote NATO. Can you imagine that? You yeah. Know, not, not <laughs> making a documentary well, about NATO. <laughs> a lot of Germans found new roles for themselves in the 50s, I guess, uh, in the uh, you know East versus West conflict. Um, yeah, so, I mean, what do, what do we learn from, from continental films? I mean, to me, the striking thing is that actually some pretty good films came out of it, despite its very checkered uh, existence. What do you what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting because uh, for many years people were wondering, you know, why actually the continental output is rather good, really, um, and people thought, you know, it's because of Greven, the producer. But what I found is actually not really. I mean, it's really because the people who were hired, I mean, in particular, you know, the directors and the screenwriter, managed to bring in, you know, great projects. And they were able to make it, you know, with very good technician. Because that's one thing you can recognize, you know, with Graven is actually he selected really good, you know, cinematographers and hot directors, you know, really the top, the top of the cream, which he, which he underpaid. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so really, I mean, everything was there, you know, within the studio to make, you know, good pictures. A link for Continental Films, French Cinema Under German Control, by Christine Latou, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Frank Thompson, Eric Grayson, and Christine Latou, and to Allison Shea at University of Wisconsin Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. 
Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover us too. In fact, it's been a while since we had a new review, so somebody start the new year off right, would you? Thanks.